0: Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Today I get to share with you the story of Joshua. Now I knew one thing about Joshua growing up as a kid and it was this, that Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. You know the song, right? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Joshua was a biblical war hero. He led the Israelite troops into battle against the nasty Canaanites, but Joshua was the man of God, and neither the Canaanites nor that wall could stand up against him. But that's not not the only thing about Joshua that you need to know. The story of Joshua is much deeper, much richer. So today I want to share with you the story of Joshua. It is the best story ever. Joshua. Who was he? Joshua became the leader of God's people right after Moses died. He was the successor to Moses. Now remember, those were huge shoes for Joshua to fill, for anyone to fill. Moses had led God's people all the way from their enslavement in Egypt, to their escape from the hands of the Pharaoh, to cross the Red Sea when the waters parted around them, Moses kept them alive during 40 years, wandering in the wilderness. Moses had helped God's people learn how to respect God's law and occasionally to keep God's law. Moses was courageous and Moses was wise, but God had told Moses that he would not lead the people into the promised land. God said that responsibility would fall on the shoulders of Joshua. So immediately when Moses dies and Joshua is appointed as the people's leader, God talks to Joshua and God says this. This is Joshua chapter 1 verse 2. My servant Moses is dead. Now cross the Jordan, Joshua, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to the Israelites. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you. As I promised to Moses... No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, Joshua, for you shall put this people in possession of the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Those are clear marching orders. A couple things are clear. Number one, God is in charge of this whole process. Number two, God promises to give land to the Israelites. Number three, it's clear that there are already other people living in that land. And number four, it's clear that those people are in trouble. Five times in this opening chapter comes a commandment to the people to be strong and courageous. There is a fight that is coming. So Joshua organizes, Joshua sends spies to go into the land and to gain intelligence on the defenses of the enemy city of Jericho. Now the spies go first to the house of a prostitute named Rahab. We're not going to talk too much about that, but curiously, right, Rahab turns out to not only know God, Rahab turns out to be on the side of the Israelites, on the side of God's people. She helps out those pitiful spies. She saves their lives. And in fact, she may save all of Israel. So what's important to note about this early episode is that here and throughout Joshua, there are these tiny hints that not every one of the inhabitants of that promised land are bad folks. Some of them will turn out to be quite good. And indeed in Joshua... There are hints that not all of the Israelites themselves are good. Some of them, in fact, will be quite unfaithful. But the story continues, right? The spies come back. They deliver their intel back to Joshua and his vast armies will cross the Jordan River, carrying with them the Ark of the Covenant that have God's tablets inside, right? The tablets, the law. The waters of the Jordan will part on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant, an obvious echo of God's deliverance in the exodus. As the people cross, the people take up 12 stones, right? 12 rocks, and they put them in a pile, and they make a marker, a trail marker, a memorial, saying this is a place where we know that God was with us. Once they arrive in the land, soon after comes the fighting. Jericho is shut up tight, right? The the walls are thick, impenetrable. No one gets in, under, around, or through these walls or these gates. So God says this, See, I handed Jericho over to you along with the king, along with its king and the soldiers. You shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city one time. And this you shall do for six more days with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day, on the seventh day, God says, you shall march around the city of Jericho seven times, the priests blowing their trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of that trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat. All the people shall charge straight. And that, in fact, is, the story says, what happened. When the people heard the trumpets, they cried out all at once. And the wall fell down, the walls of Jericho fell down, and the Israelites charged straight into the city. Scripture then says that God's people murdered every living thing in the city of Jericho. God's divinely sanctioned slaughter, doesn't stop with Jericho. It keeps going in Joshua through the whole of the promised land. When it's done, Joshua divides the conquered lands neatly among the 12 tribes of Israel. The story of Joshua ends. And in the final chapters, Joshua is old. And something has changed. To quote the musical Hamilton, winning is easy, governing is harder. Joshua says to the people God gave us this land on one condition that we would be a faithful people that we would keep God's commandments. But Joshua says at the end of the book named after him, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. But but as Joshua looks around, it's clear that God's people aren't nearly so committed. The people will serve the gods that are most convenient to them. And so the land, this beautiful land of milk and honey, this land that was so long promised to their ancestors and so recently delivered into their hands. By the end of Joshua, it is clear that this land will not be theirs much longer. This is the story of Joshua. It is the best story ever. It is the word of God for you, the people of God. We say, thanks be. To God. All right, so this story of Joshua is brutal. This is the stuff in the Bible that turns good people, all people, away from God. The idea that God commands ethnic cleansing is sick. It's sick in part because we know that our ancestors took this very story and made it happen in real life. I don't know how much you know about the American ideology called Manifest Destiny. It is a white Christian nationalist ideology that justified the genocide of, an, of indigenous people in this land from the 1800s all the way into the present day. President Trump even quoted it in his recent July 4th speech on Lakota land near Mount Rushmore. We, We know this story is awful and it's real. We know that our ancestors took this land. We betrayed and murdered its inhabitants just like it says in the story. And we said it was all God's plan. Joshua belongs among the most vile and degrading of all human stories. There's a strong case that we should just ditch the whole book and stop telling God-forsaken stories like this one. We should chuck Joshua into the wastebasket of bad biblical books, just like we skip over Philemon and Revelation. We should skip over Joshua, right? Maybe. Maybe. Before we do, before we throw it out, let me ask one question. Humor me for a second. What if part of the gift of our Bible is not only its content? What if part of the gift of Scripture to us is teaching us the practice, the the spiritual practice, the art form of reading itself? Reading, you know this, reading is not just about looking at the words that appear on a page and either absorbing them as truth or rejecting them as falsehood. Reading is an invitation into the heart and mind of another human being, into the heart and mind of the writer. By giving us access to the heart and mind of another human being, reading becomes a mirror into our own soul. There is, I think, a holy way of reading the book of Joshua. But it's not to go through it and say blithely, it looks like God authorized ethnic cleansing, and then either say I'm cool with that or, or I'm done with God. The invitation here, I think, is to a deep reflection on the motivations of the people who wrote this book and called it holy what if you could understand their motivations, whether you agree with them or not? And what if by doing so, you could better understand your own motivations, your own life? Has there ever been a time, a situation, when, when you have called something holy, when you have said God is in this thing and realized later that it never should have been so? Here's one thing you need to know about the book of Joshua. None of it ever happened. There never was a military invasion by the Israelites of the Promised Land. Archaeologists are positive about this truth. So if the Israelites didn't actually do the things that are are described in the book of Joshua, then it's sure that God didn't do them or authorize them either. So what did happen in real life? How did Israel come into the promised land? The truth is that we have no idea. There may have been a small group of people who lived under Egyptian authority, who got free and and came to settle in Palestine and retained that revolutionary memory of God's agency in their freedom. There may have been a group of folks who lived in the rural parts of Palestine, who fought against the oppressive rule of city-dwelling elites. These rural folks might have organized themselves around the idea that those oppressive cities needed to be overthrown because they stood in the way of the rural folks living in peace on the land. We don't know exactly how the people came into the Promised Land. However it happened, it's for sure that there was not an invasion. What there were, in fact, were some old traditions, old traditions about a God who had delivered people from slavery into freedom. And they were joined to traditions that said that that same liberating God wouldn't hesitate to overthrow elite city dwellers who deprived poor farmers from their right to work the land and enjoy the fruits of their own labor. Now, over the centuries, these traditions coalesced into one tradition, Over those same centuries, the people who told these traditions gained land and gained power and then lost the same land and lost their power to more powerful foreign peoples. And when those people felt most powerless, when the foreign armies were knocking at the door or when they had even seen their culture destroyed and they were living in exile, they would bring back these stories that showed to them a God who told them to be strong and courageous, and a God would fight with them and for them to give them their land and their dignity again. Here's why I think reading the story of Joshua still matters. First, it forces us each to ask, who is it that writes a story about taking other people's property by divine right and by violence? may, in fact, be from a person who themselves has been systematically denied the right to land and the right to their own personhood, someone who has consistently and repeatedly had their own dignity effaced? Could you find it in you to sympathize with a child of God who has experienced all of these things again and again, and hear what it means when God asks that person to be strong and to be courageous and to fight. Maybe it's not hard for you to imagine a fellow human being not so long ago in our own nation on this own land, a fellow human being with brown skin who lives but only lives as another person's property. Could you imagine a person in that Situation: reading the story of Joshua and seeing God lift up leaders who have a warrior spirit and who will fight for his or her people. You can hear that person singing, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the wall came tumbling down and know that they were singing about the walls of enslavement. And they were dreaming of a day when God would lead God's beloved people to cross over the Jordan River to the promised land of freedom that lay on the other side. You can hear all that, I think, when you lean in and listen, listen behind the story of Joshua in the scripture. But you may also read this story, many of you, and find that the reflection that's staring back at you is unflattering and even ugly. You may see in this book People who look exactly like you, using and abusing the Holy Word, God's Holy Word, to justify violence against other children of God and justify the taking of their land in the name of God. And even when we see that unflattering rejection, which which I would commend you to look hard and see it, especially if your skin is the color of mine, that process can have deep spiritual value. Can chasten you. It can humble you. It can make you see how easy it is for us to twist God's image into our own image and to corrupt God's plans so that they look like our own greedy ambitions. I'm here today in Han Woods on Emory University's campus on the banks of the South Peachtree Creek. It's that banks that you see here behind me. This is as good as any place, I think, for us to reflect on the Joshua's and the Jericho rivers that exist in our own world. Whose land is it that that we sit on at this very minute? How did it get to be in in that person's possession, right? I mean, this land right now is Emory's land, purchased in the 1960s from the family of W.J. Houston. W.J. Houston had a mill on this site about a mile away, a mill since the 1800s. And Houston had slaves on this site, too. Houston got the land from his father-in-law, a Dr. Chapman Powell, who got it from, well... By the time Dr. Powell built his cabin off what is now Claremont Road in Decatur, the Muscogee people who had been living here along the tributaries of the Chattahoochee River for hundreds or thousands of years, those Muscogees had been mostly cleared from the land through one-sided treaties and through violent dispossession. I'm sure many of you heard this week that the city of Asheville, North Carolina, had voted to begin the process of awarding reparations to its black residents to begin to compensate for the historical dispossession of land and body. And last week, the Supreme Court ruled, surprisingly, to uphold the integrity and sovereignty of Native American lands in Oklahoma given to them by the federal government in the 1800s. Those lands, of course, belong to the Muscogee people who once lived here in Georgia. Reading Joshua and finding ourself and our people in its pages can be a spiritually harrowing task. It forces us to look with clear eyes at our own history, at the history of the land that we occupy, and the history of the people who came here before us. But this kind of reading of Joshua can clarify in some profound personal and political ways what it means that we are a people who believe in a God who promises the gift of land to all of God's beloved children. Remember the great vision of the prophet Isaiah, who saw a vision of God's new Jerusalem in the 65th chapter of that great book. There, God promises that my people will build houses and dwell in those houses, they will plant vineyards and eat the fruit of those vineyards. No longer will my people build houses and have others live in them or plant fields and have others eat their fruit. This promise comes from God. And we believe that that promise is no less true for the people who have recently arrived in the land as it is for the people who have been here for a long time already. So may we, may all of us, may you and I have strength And may we have courage to live in the direction of this holy word. Be strong and be courageous. For this is, in the end, the best story ever. Let the people say, Amen.